little rainy out there, but lots of people here tonight. Good. Good to see you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray, and then we're going to get back to Leviticus. Father, we thank you for this time of great worship, Lord. Um, Who would have thought that a lamb could suffer and bring us redemption? But Lord, if we know our Old Testament, if we studied Leviticus, Lord, we would know that there was a picture given of of a coming final lamb. And so we thank you now, Lord, as we are able to look at the Old Testament and realize that, as John the Baptist said, there, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it would have all flushed all back to that beautiful teaching throughout the Pentateuch, Lord, that there was a coming a Lamb, a final Lamb. And so, Lord, we thank you for revealing that to us. Thank you for giving us faith so we could repent and believe and follow you, Lord. Lord, we're so grateful to be together today, be with those who can't be here, those who, um, for whatever reason, are sick or ill or not able to come, Lord, we ask that you would just heal them and strengthen them. For those who are watching online, Lord, help them know we love them and that they'll be able to return soon to be with us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we started off with a little definition and a little work on biblical theology, if you remember. Um, and that was fun. I enjoyed that. Many people have responded to that. It's, it's helpful to learn so that when you read your Bible, you don't get lost in Leviticus sometimes when you know that there's a flow. It's all flowing towards something. And biblical theology teaches that. Last week, we also talked about reconciliation. And one of the things we see in the book of Leviticus particularly is God always working at reconciling himself to his people. Not them trying to reconcile themselves to to God, it's God preparing a way for them to reconcile to him. And I, and I see that as God's grace. He's always at work drawing people back into a right relationship with him. And we spent quite a bit of time on that and I only got through one point. So uh, you'll see on your notes, um, there's a bit of a review here. I just want to review that first point here as we look at Leviticus chapter 6 here and then we'll move on with the rest. We're, what, what happened in Leviticus in this section, particularly 6 and 7, is he's he is, God is speaking to Moses and saying, all right, here's the details of all of the, all of the sacrifices that I've gone through in the first five chapters and what they look like, what the role of the priest is, what the role of the sacrifice is, and how things are to be handled. So last week we said, number one, justice and love perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And, and, and we came to that conclusion after understanding that all of the, the Bible is flowing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see ultimate fulfillment here. So in chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord begins to speak again, and he speaks to Moses, and, and Moses is listening, and God's given him instructions. And he describes there uh, stuff that was taking place, what, uh, these offerings that have been taking place, particularly in chapter 1, and he's giving a more fuller detail of these things. Remember we talked about that the sacrifice was to be on the altar for a, a long time. There was a slow-burning, hot heat that would um, take and uh, devour the entire sacrifice. And then we looked at the sacrifices that they pointed to two things. Um, we looked at some application, but then we really pointed out that, one, when we look at the sacrifices, what we see is it points to the awfulness of sin. The The sacrifice is innocent, it hasn't done anything wrong, and yet it becomes sin in a sense, and it's offered, and there's there's an awfulness to man's sin. But then we see the grace of God in that sacrifice, right? There's a substitute, something, uh, not us, something takes our place. So first we see the awfulness of sin, and then we see the grace of God. 
We also saw this perpetual flame. Remember that verses told us there in uh, chapter 6, 8 through 10, that this flame was to be continually burned. And we talked about it speaks of the eternal justice of God. Sin must be judged. And it's not hard to make the connection to hell. And we talked about hell last week a little bit. Um, here the Bible speaks of, of hell in, in a sense here as we look at this. But, but the Bible speaks of hell a lot. In fact, it talks about hell as a place where the fire is not dis, uh, extinguished. There, we said this last week, there's a sleeplessness to hell. There's just sleeplessness to hell. It does not rest day or night. And so we see that as an idea. When we think about the awfulness of sin and we see that perpetual fire burning and slowly consuming that sacrifice, there is certainly a reminder of that. But at the same time, we see the grace of God, don't we? We see here in the sacrifices that an Israelite could bring an innocent animal of God's choosing that would suffer that slow uh, destruction of his flesh on behalf of them as they were bled out on their half. But it wasn't hard to imagine also that that was a living example. And we talked about a dad who could stand outside his tent and share with his children, see that flickering flame way over there in the tabernacle courtyard. That was where the lamb gave his life for us. And they would talk about those things if they were following God. And they would realize that there was a price paid for them. And that they could be at peace. They could be at peace with God. There was also further instructions we see in that first part of chapter 6, 8 through 16 or so down through there. That there's instructions on garments and ashes. And, and we talked about the purity that the garments represented. They represented the purity of God. And the priests were being dressed right. And they were to even wash off any blood that got on them. They were to stay pure in their garments there. I don't think the linen robes displayed the eternal, eternality of God. I, I think they displayed the incarnation of Christ. Here, the Lord comes and he is holy humanity. He humbles himself. He, he dresses himself in humanity, Philippians chapter 2. And that's what I believe they reflected there. But they also reflected the covering of the nakedness of man. And so these priests were covered in certain garments that reflected righteousness, right? And, and of course, that's exactly what happened in the garden. There, Adam and Eve had sinned. They had chose to disobey God. They found themselves under sin's weight. And, and because of that, they felt their nakedness. They felt their shameness, and they went and hid. And God seeks them out. And then he, he kills a, an innocent Animal. It doesn't tell us there in chapter 3, verse 21 of Genesis, um, but most likely I would imagine it might have been a lamb. And there he took the skins and he covered them. And so there's a coveringness. There's, a, there's, there's an idea of being covered here. And it takes you even back to the garden. We talked about the ashes. It was interesting that we saw that the ashes were to be cleaned out, continually cleaned out, and they were to be set on the side of the altar there where they were cool. And, and it taught us that justice was accomplished. That sacrifice for sin, because remember, the, that sacrifice repre represented sin. It, it, it was fully consumed, and so those ashes were set there to be cooled. And, and then after time, they were taken outside the camp. We also saw in verse 11 that the priests had to wear certain garments and, and when they were cleaning out and when they were taking ashes out and stuff. And, 
And, and again, those garments were a reflection that, that sin would cleave to those things, and they were to be taken out. And um, it really, you really see Christ in so many ways. He was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 51. He was to be numbered among the wicked and, and taken outside the camp. And so those ashes and those garments all represent Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and substitute for us and his finished work. I thought a little bit farther about that this week. I, I thought, Lord, you, you finished on the cross. You really wore the garments of humanity. You, you were judged as though you committed our sin. In fact, the verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit as we go forward. I think that's really seen in these texts because he becomes sin, but yet he goes, goes to the cross. He cries out, it's finished. He's taken out from there. He's taken outside. He's laid in a clean tomb, not a tomb that's ever been used by someone else. It's a clean tomb. And there in the valley of death of ashes, God raises him from the dead and justifies us. I mean, you just see this over and over. As you study this, you go, oh, that's Christ, that's Christ, that's Christ, that's Christ. And we find such joy in those. We finally ended it with verses 12 and 13 last week, and we saw the divine justice of God and the substitute sacrifice of Christ bearing that sin, just that relentless heat. Keep those fires going, God said to Moses. Keep them going. And reminded that God did not let up on Jesus. He did not let up on him. In fact, he put the full weight of his justice, the full weight of the law on our Savior. Those fires kept burning as God judged him on our behalf. And then verse 12, we saw that the fat burning on the altar would fan the flame, the flame, the flame fan the flame, and, and that would rise up. And, and that itself was showing that there was a peace offering being made to God, and the fire would blaze, and it would consume everything, so God was justified. Verse, th- for, excuse me, verse 13, the fire was to have no end. And I don't know if you remember this. I took you to John 3, 36. And there it said, but the, because there, there's those who believe in the Son have eternal life, but there's those who do not obey the Son, the Bible says, the wrath of God abides, ameno is a Greek word, remains permanently on them. And this is where we kind of wrap things up because we begin to understand that's what Christ kept telling us. He kept telling us there's a place that if you're not forgiven by me, that where the worm won't die, the fire will not be quenched. And it matches, right? God's eternal justice um, never lacks fuel, right? And there's his eternal justice of sin and the greatness and vastness of sin will always have fuel in hell. And so when we think about that, it took this eternal redemption to overcome our eternal deserving the deserving eternal weight of sin that we caused and that's why the writer of hebrews says we've attained this eternal redemption it's an eternal redemption to overcome the eternal judgment we deserved it has to be better right it has to match at least it has to be better right so if i my wages of sin is death i i deserve eternal death so eternal life has to be able to overcome eternal death See, that's why salvation is such a great thing, right? It overcomes eternal death. And all of this is being pictured in these sacrifices. Now, we left off on what's number two here. It'll be number one for us as we go along. But number two says, the bread of life shared 
with the Father's priesthood of believers. Now remember, he's working through these things and he's, he's giving more instruction to all of the sacrifices that he's already worked through in the first five ones. And here we come to this grain offering again. And again, it was explained in chapter two. But he comes back here and he wants the priest here to offer a grain offering on behalf of the worshiper. And he wants it to dedicate the entire person to God. The grain offering was to say, you have me whole, God. You have all of me. And so there's instruction given here. And, and remember, the grain offering was about thanksgiving. So they were to come holy by faith that, God, I put my faith in you. I trust you. I'm going to give you the first fruits of what I have, believing by faith you're going to provide for me. So much of the sacrifices were based on faith, Right? They become duty when you didn't love God, but they were, they were full of delight for the Israelite who believed in God, that they came by faith, even though they weren't assured that the, the great bounty of harvest would come in, they would come and say, by faith, God, I offer you first fruits. Here I am, whole, all of me giving this to you. Boy, that sounds like the way we should live our lives, isn't it? Bringing our first fruits, bringing a whole offering of thanksgiving by faith to God. I think we sing that way and we worship that way. And so as we look at verses 14 and 15, we realize the priest would take a handful of this fine flour mixed with frankincense and oil and he would offer this up to God as an act of gratitude and faith on behalf of the worshiper. And then the worshiper, he would or she would find great joy as they expressed their faith that God would provide for them. And this was, a, the Bible says, a soothing aroma to the Lord now this smoking altar and the heat that came out of this would consume that. And, and so whether it was wine that was sometimes poured on it or grain of some sort was put on it, it would go up as though it was going up to God and it was an act of worship from that worshiper of faith. Verse 15 reminds us that this was to be done repeatedly. And in fact, he's, he's actually warning the priest not to take this very serious, to, to take each sacrifice and every time to do this serious. Is one of the problems that happened with um, uh, Eli's sons, uh, Samuel's sons. One of the things that happened with those boys, if you go back and study those, is they quit taking the things of God seriously. They were supposed to be taking each of these sacrifices and doing them the way God wanted them, with, with a heartfelt worship on behalf of that, that one who was sacrificing that, and yet they began to abuse it. They took things that didn't belong to them. They took things that belonged to the Lord. They didn't do things in a proper way. They offered strange fire to God. And he wiped them out. And it's a great reminder for leadership. God reminds us, do things my way. It may not be popular, and people might get, oh, well, why are we still preaching the word? I don't know what they get upset at. But we need to do that. This is the way God wants us to do it. Look at verse 16 with me. Here we find the, re, the remainder of the fine flour here is to be eaten in the form of unleavened bread. And so every offering would have a handful that would go to God. And then there would be the rest that was free from leaven, which was a reminder free from the corruption of sin. They were not to have any leaven in this. And it was to be so pure, this offering, that it was to be eaten. You'll notice this in verse 16. It was to be eaten on the holy grounds of the tabernacle. They weren't to take it off of that. And... Isn't that fascinating? Because that's where God dwelled. And so here we begin to realize that where God dwells, it's holy, right? 
So we see this in several ways. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, Moses out wandering in the wilderness, taking care of his father-in-law sheep, and he comes across a bush that won't consume. It's burning and won't be consumed. Do you remember this? When we were in Exodus. And what, is the, what does God say from that bush? Do what? What was he supposed to, the first thing he was supposed to do? Take your shoes off. This ground is what? It's holy. So where God is, all the ground is holy, right? So in this case, as these priests are offering up um, this sacrifice, and then they're to eat this, they were not to take it and handle it in an ordinary way. They were to deal with it right there, eat with it on that holy ground. Everything about it was holy. It was free of leaven. It was to teach them that God is holy, and you are to live holy lives. Don't take it out of here. Now, I got thinking about that whole holy ground where Moses was, and I went back to read where Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, begins to speak about his experience in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember this? Mount, Trinif- Mount, Trans- Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the top, and there he's, his veil has dropped, in a sense, the full deity of who he is in, in equality with the Father is exposed to them, and, and man, they're wanting to build bush, uh, uh, tabernacles and, and, and booths, and, and uh, they're overwhelmed with it. Well, when Peter reaccounts that, and you'll have to go back and look at this on your own, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, he says, We ourselves heard this utterance, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. When that utterance was made, we were there, Peter says, and he says, with him on that holy mountain. Now you go, wait a minute. The Old Testament says where God is, whether it's a burning bush or it's this tabernacle or this complex built with the walls of skins and so forth, that was holy. But now we have the Lord Jesus Christ standing on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now Peter says, inspired by the Spirit of God, says that's holy ground. Complete equality with the presence of Christ as well as the presence with God. See, the the religions of the world, all of them, reject Jesus Christ as God. And these are just, you know, they all go, well, show me a passage from the Trinity. Well, it's all through the Bible. And this is just one of them. So what you do is say, well, in Exodus 3, 5, that's a holy ground. Because God, they go, oh, yeah, that's holy ground. Well, the Bible says where Jesus was in Matthew 17 was holy ground. (laughs) What do you do with that? And there's just many ways to show that Jesus Christ shared full deity with God, and he is God. Now, think about this tabernacle yard there, you know, this courtyard there. That, that's really the gateway to the house of God, isn't it? It's the doorstep to God. And so these priests were to take this grain. They were to consider the ground they're on because God was there. They were to consider that as holy. Now, let's just go a step further. The Bible says that Jesus, um, Jesus intercedes for us, and yet the Holy Spirit, so Jesus is interceding with the Father, the Holy Spirit is interceding with us, but he remains within us, so we have the triune God at work in our lives, and so God himself takes his spirit, places it within us, and it has to be the most holy place in the world. So what we consume and what we do, we must realize we actually stand in holy ground, don't we? There used to be an old hymn we used to sing, Standing on, the, on Holy Ground. Um, and the hymn was built around the aspect that God indwells us. And, and of course, you're gonna, we're going to see this as we get in 1 Corinthians, go farther in chapter 6 and so forth. Because what Paul is going to do, he says, wait a minute. If you're the temple of God, what do you have to do with prostitutes? 
what do you have to do with unequally being unequally yoked? And he begins to take this same understanding of this holy ground. Why are you taking my bread? Why are you taking my place where I dwell, where I am holy, and you're taking it somewhere that I don't belong? See, this stuff works, doesn't it? It goes right to the New Testament. And that's where the authors, remember, this was their preaching text, the Old Testament. But they understood Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of this. And so Paul would charge the Corinth church who were very lazy in their behavior. Their marriages were a mess. Their morals were a mess. The way they looked at God, the way they looked at women, the way they looked at a lot of things was a mess. And so he's trying to bring them back to the holiness of a believer where God dwells. And it doesn't take long to study this stuff and go, wow, that's exactly what Paul was teaching out of. He's teaching out of these texts as he's trying to help that church grow. Verses 17 and 18 in, verse, in chapter 6. The priest was instructed not to use this bread in an ordinary way. Look, don't take it out of here. This is not for just your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This is, this is unique. I'm giving it to you. I want you to know it's coming from me. It's not having any leaven in it. It's a holy gift from me. They were to understand that because they want, God wanted them to understand purity. He wanted them to understand the difference between sinfulness and, and perfect, uh, flawless holiness. He wants them to see that. Otherwise, they'll lose their fear of God. Now, it seems God looked at this unleavened bread, as you see this in 17 and 18, as a shared blessing between himself, the worshiper, and the priest. And I thought this was fascinating. So he gives... A portion of the bread is, is burned to the Lord as a sacrifice. Then he gives a portion back to the priest and to the worshiper here. Now, notice this. It's given in holiness. It's got no leaven in it. It's received in holiness because it's not, it's not something based in sin in any, any way. And it's enjoyed in holiness. It's eaten on the grounds of the temple in a holy place. Now, that's not hard to think about Jesus in this, right? So Jesus was given in holiness, right? The Father sent his Son, in essence sent himself in, in the full, for, full deity of God dwells in him bodily, right? So he takes on human flesh. So, he, so by grace, God gives us the holiness of Christ. We receive him, right? He comes to us, we receive him in holiness, you cannot be saved if you think Jesus is in, uh, of sin somewhere, has sin in him. The other day, Paul was showing me something as he's getting ready for this uh, woke um, series he's doing. And um, it's a quote from a pastor that says that, oh, someone help me with this. We talked about it. Where is either fa the father or Jesus has to confess their sin for what he did. That's how far they take this false view of God to try to justify some of the racial issues that have gone on because of sin, certainly. It's just totally distorted. So if we have a Savior who indeed is full of sin, of any, one ounce of sin, one, one sin at all, he cannot be our sacrifice. And so he wants them to understand we receive Christ. We was given, he was given to us in holiness. We receive him in holiness. And then the last one, we enjoy Christ in holiness. So this is why when you walk in sin and you haven't repented of it, Jesus isn't all that fun. Because you find yourself this hypocrite. You're at church and oh yeah. And you know 
that you're sleeping with somebody or you're, or you're totally rejected the truth of God in, in one, one area where he wants you, you know that you're supposed to be walking in. See, you're, you're just, there's no closeness to him, right? See, he's, we enjoy him in holiness. He's made us holy, and so our lives desire to be holy like him. That's what, that's what the Bible said, be holy for he's holy. What a picture of Christ that is, isn't it? And so they were to take this bread and they were to enjoy this as a holy gift from God, not like an ordinary bread, not like bread that they sustained them and gave them strength every day to do their task. This was a holy gift from God and they were to enjoy God as they enjoyed the bread. I think that's good, isn't it? Boy, do we enjoy the bread of life, Jesus Christ? Do you receive him in his holiness? Do you realize that he, him alone makes you holy? I also believe God's teaching the nation here in these verses, particularly 17 and 18, that even the smallest offering was done with a right heart, was holy to God. This handful of grain, you would offer this ephath of grain, um, they're probably ground and mixed with um, frankincense and oil, and they would just take a handful of that and offer that to God. just seemed pretty simple, doesn't it? If you've ever ground grain, it doesn't take a lot of grain to get a handful of flour. It doesn't take much. Because grain turns into powder and expands. and It doesn't sound like a lot. But I think what I love about this is it reminds that even the smallest things, when you obey the Lord with a right heart, He receives worship for it. And I saw that in these details. Verse 18 adds some details to chapter 2 that we didn't have there. That not only was those who... Um, were there to offer it, but everybody involved in this had to be ceremonial clean. So you had to cleanse yourself uh, to give this offering. You had to cleanse yourself to receive this offering. You had to cleanse yourself to, to handle this offering. You had to cleanse yourself to eat this offering. It's all about purity here. And everything and every person had to be washed, giving a deep sense of purity of God as you handled the things of him. And we've probably lost that, haven't we? I mean, you think about the church today, some of the things that are going on in church services today. Through the years, we've had church discipline issues and that were really hard to go through. And of course, the people leave the church and they go down the street to another church and we say, hey, brother, we, there's, a, there's a man over there, a woman over there that's been through church discipline here and we've patiently worked over the last two to three years trying to bring them to repentance and they're in your congregation would you help us bring this person to repentance oh no no we don't do that stuff here we love god you don't have times we've heard that so you just let impurity come in knowing knowing that that impurity is in but you do nothing about it and we have to be careful because we can look at that and go oh boy and yet When's the last time you prayed and said, Lord Jesus, forgive me for this? Did we go all day without asking the Lord's forgiveness for something? Because doubtlessly, somewhere along the line, we stumbled today. And so there's a sense of purity. When I study this, I go, there's such a sense of purity. Andrew Bonar, the great Scottish preacher and hymn writer, said this. He says, what a deep circle of awe that was drawn around the altar its offerings. Nothing is more blissful than God's presence, yet nothing more solemn. And when you study this, you begin to realize everything was to be pure around God. 
Remember, the temple is this human picture of God in heaven, isn't it? And if the temple is defiled, that destroys your view of what God is. So God said, hey, I want you to understand who I am and what surrounds me. Holiness surrounds me. Angels cry out, holy, holy, holy all day. Don't let impurities into my house. Don't let impurities into my temple. When we think about Christ as the bread of life, because as we're dealing with bread here and grain, we have to go to him. And the bread of life is shared with the Father's priesthood, right? He shares the bread of life with us. And we're now holy and we share this bread of life and, and Jesus is the bread of life given to us. The Father has gifted us with this pure bread of life. And, and the Bible tells us, Jesus says, if you, if you eat of me, you'll never hunger. That's how good the bread is. When you taste Jesus and eat of him, you'll never look for another way. You're, you're satisfied. You'll, you'll never think, go, well, I wonder if those Jehovah's Witnesses have something going. We don't. You'd never do that because you know they don't see Jesus as God. You wouldn't be looking over the fence at other religions or, or wondering if evolution is true or those type of things. You, you begin to understand he's perfect and holy when you've tasted of him. And, and look, brothers and sisters, this is what brings us to repentance time and time again. It is the holiness of Christ, the purity standing on holy ground as he indwells us, the Spirit of Christ within us, Paul says. He uses that term, connecting it to the Holy Spirit, connecting it to the Trinity. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ is within us. Oh, what, what beautiful lessons are here. Third point, the bread of life offered entirely to the Father. The bread of life offered entirely to the Father. Well, verses 19 and 20, here we find a, a particular grain offering that was part of the anointing and consecration of the priesthood. And, and we're going to see much more of this in chapter 8, but it's already been described in, in Exodus 29 a little bit. He's going to give us a little bit of details here and then fill them out in, in Leviticus chapter 8. But, but there's some interesting things here I want to point out. In verse 21 through 23, um, we see in a normal grain offering that's shared with a priest that part of the grain would go to the priest and they would make bread for themselves and they would eat it there on that holy ground. But here in this grain offering, as you look at these verses 21 through 23 in chapter 6, um, this, was, this was associated with the ceremony of the priest. And this particular bread was not to be eaten. It was actually to be burned up completely. They were told to take that grain. Now, instead of taking that and making cakes for yourself to eat, you, make, you take that grain, make cakes, um, and then bring them back to the flame and offer that totally up to God. And so they made like a wafer, um, almost like a fried bread out of it. It was very thin, uh, would be bubbly. Even the Hebrew word has a kind of idea of a bubble in it um, when it speaks about it there. Um, and that was to be offered to the Lord. And they were, that was to be brought to this altar already prepared. Um, they were fried up in a pan. You'll see it in the text there. And, and it symbolized a complete offering. So the grain was made into something. It was, it, was, it was a complete offering to the Lord. And of course, this again prefigures the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who entirely offered himself completely as our sacrifice, as a soothing sacrifice to the Father on our behalf. Now, because it was completely burned up, the type refers to the Savior and not the people. So remember, there's some grain, they, they burned up the flour, and then they made food for it, and they ate it on holy ground. 
but not this one. This, this really resembles Christ in a lot of ways because Jesus Christ gave himself holy, bodily, soul. He, 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 he gave himself holy to the consuming fire of the judgment of God on our behalf. And the priest um, handling this offering, they represented the greater high priest, right? And, and so the, Jesus is so beautiful because he's the high priest, he's the sacrifice, he's, he's all of those things. And, and here we see the bread is completely consume. Forethought. Um, we are holy because God is holy, so sin can be broken and we can live God's way. And, and he's going to take us through some thoughts here to help us understand this as we look forward to the cross. Here we get to sin offering, which takes you back to chapter 4, right? So each of these, chap- each of these sections, he's taking on these different offerings. We looked at this offering in chapter 4, but he gives a few additional thoughts here. Now, the purpose for the sin offering was not for accidental sin, you remember this, or for sin of outright rebellion. It was a sacrifice more for those who genuinely lived in obedience of God but started to stray into worldly things. So it, it, it's, it's a sacrifice in a sense to bring you back. When we think of sin offering, we, we might want to think of atonement offering. That's coming, chapter 17. But here the sin offering is to to help man realize, help the Israelite realize that he has a fallen human disposition about him. And there's times he or she fails to live up to God's standard. And that's what this offering was about. So as we look at verses 24, 25, and 26, you begin to see that the sin offering um, served by the priest here was they were able to eat portion of the sacrifice. So it wasn't wholly burned up. The sin offerings that are wholly burned up are a more of atonement type of sacrifice. Here they were to given part of this meat. Now, the meat offered in this sin offering was to be regarded as holy. And this is fascinating. And everything connected to it, uh, the eating of it, was to be holy. So in verse 26, they're, they're to do this in the court of the tent of the meetings. So this is not to leave this place either. So this offering was truly set apart for God... And anyone or anything who even touched it must be holy. And even if the blood spilt on the garment had to be washed with water, it was all to be holy. Look in verse 27. Even the pots themselves that they cooked these things in were to be holy. And if any of the meat touched anything that wasn't holy, it had to be, it had to be fixed, right? It had to be cleansed in some way. Now, this really made me think because the meat, the animal meat, symbolically reflects sin in this passage. So when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a lot of people stumble over this text. It says that he who knew no sin, what does it say, became sin for us. So a lot of people trip over that. And they'll say, did he lose his holiness on our part? You'll hear people say things that aren't correct. When they get to that. Well, this, this section, this is, where, this is where Paul's thinking of, doubtlessly, when he brings that, that passage out. He became sin for us. So this animal meat here in verse 27 and, and following here, this represents sin. So, so anything this meat touches or the blood of this meat touches, it, it pollutes. So that's my sin in that meat on that. So, so God has to consume that up. It's not to be eaten by anything. It needs to be fully offered to him, but everything else around it is defiled. And notice, notice in verse 27, even the pots that they were cooked in. 
And so if they're bronze pots, you'll see there, if it's bronze pots, they were to be scoured with, with water and cleansed. But if they're clay pots, right, like an earthen pot, I think is the word in, the, in there, well, that would absorb something, right? You cook in clay, it's going to go down, and they're going to be very hard to get that cleanse. Look what it says. They were to be destroyed. They're to be destroyed. And, and here's the idea here. See, I believe what the Bible's teaching is here is sin soaks into something that cannot be cleansed. It must be destroyed. But on the other hand, if, if, if it's tempered by fire, like bronze had to be tempered by fire, it, it was able to be judged, and it was able, therefore, to be cleansed, and it could be used again. Now, there will be those who go to eternal judgment who are soaked in sin. They could not be cleansed. They would not repent. They would not turn from their sins and they will be sent to eternal judgment. But there are those that just need daily cleansing. So when Peter walks into the upper room the night before the death of Christ and Jesus there pulls off his outer garment and uh, ties it around his waist and he gets on his knees and begins to wash the feet of, of them, Peter says, no, not my feet. <laughs> but Peter may, Jesus makes an astounding statement to him, doesn't he? Hey, look, I must wash your feet. You must be cleansed. And, and, and Peter reacts to it in such an amazing way. He goes, well, then just not my feet, my entire body, right? And Jesus says, no, no, just your feet. And it's such a great teaching because it reminds us as believers, there are times we are like those bronze pots of the sin offering that's in them. There are times we need cleansing, don't we? We need to be honest before God of our lives and the, and the sin that we've let stay resident there. And that needs to be cleansed, doesn't it? But then there's others. There's others that refuse to see Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. They, re they remain permanently stained and they can never be cleansed and they go to eternal judgment. And that's what Jesus is speaking about in John chapter 3, verse 36. They won't obey me. They remain in judgment. Well, at the end of chapter 6 there, we come to verse 30. And here we see the last distinction. The sin offering was made for the priest. It was made for Israel. It was made for the leader. It was made for the common person. Remember, we went all through this in chapter 4. But for the sin offering... Um, made for the priest and for Israel, there was, there was um, no more portion of animal that could be eaten. It was, it was to burned up completely. It was an atonement for these priests. Remember, he's, he's helping them understand that God has set them aside. They're going to picture Christ in a unique way as one who comes as the great high priest before the Father. Now, two more points, and I think I can maybe get through this. Um, I want to get into chapter, later into chapter 7 and 8 next time. Five, sin, blood, and sacrifice, the cost of reconciliation. Just look at me chapter 7. Here he starts back into the, to what we call the guilt offering, or your Bible might say the trespass offering, depending on what translation you have here. They're, they're both very good words to describe this offering here. Now, much of what was said about the blood and the sin offering in chapter 4 here is, is God's reiterating some of these things. Um, and, and the guilt offering was, was covered in chapter 5, but, but there's still more that he wants them to understand about this. As you study Israel's history and it unfolds, you'll see that they, they always did not have the tabernacle 
made and they lived around it. As time went on and they developed cities and, and regions and boundaries to, to the nation, um, the temple was always in one place and they would travel to it, right? And there there, there was journeys. And a lot of our psalms and a lot of the passages in, in, the, in the prophets talk about the journey to Zion, the journey to the temple. And when, when Israel would start to move towards this, it's a fascinating thing, and we can see this in the Psalms, I'll show you some of this, is that there was an anticipation on the true believer in Israel. The, the believer who truly believed that God could, could reconcile him, and as he, leading his family most likely in many cases, leading his family to the temple, to the tabernacle, for that time of reconciliation, he would anticipate it. If he was a godly Israelite, he would probably have a heavy-laden heart over his sin. It's been a year since he's been to the Day of Atonement. It's been a year since a lamb that was taken into his home was to be offered. And that was a long journey often. And, and oh, how it must have, uh, have, have looked to the children and to, the, and to those who went along, who longed for the temple, longed to see it. And, and when they came up to the temple and they were able to just to look inside the temple gate into there, what they saw was blood. <laughs> when they looked, they saw blood on the altar basin. They saw blood on the horns. They saw blood on the side. And those who truly were broken over their sin, the sight of the tabernacle was, was like medicine to their heart. Remember, their sacrifices held off sin's judgment for a year. And then they did it again, and then they did it again, and then they did it again, till the final lamb came. And so if you really believe that God, God, by faith, you believe that God forgave you of your sins through the sacrifice, oh, that must have been a precious time. We're going to temple, family. We're going to the tabernacle. And literally, you, they would probably say, we are going to the house of God. And we're going to get right with God. Look with me at Psalms chapter 84. The more I study this, the more the Psalms come alive. There was always psalms that I didn't always understand growing up, and there was lots of things about temple worship in there and sacrifices and these praises. And, and I just, until I understood biblical theology, they didn't really come alive to me. Like, well, okay, that's, a real, that's really for the Israelites. That's, boy, that's really good. But now we begin to see, as those who desire reconciliation with God know or think so thankful, and we offer up the sacrifice of praise, we start to understand these things. L listen, maybe this was a psalm they sang as they worked their way to the temple, written by the sons of Korah. Verse 1, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Can you imagine living out and maybe you were part of the tribes who, who settled on the other side of the Jordan, but you went across the Jordan and you fought with the rest of Israel and secured the land, but then you went back there and you were pretty far away from where the temple and the tabernacle was set up. Um, and so you had a long trip with your family to get there. And maybe you sang this song, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Listen to this, my soul longs, even yearns for the courts of the Lord. Now, see, can now you see it? See, as an Israelite, you're going, I can't wait to get there. And you're describing to your children, as you look into the courtyard, there's an altar there, and it's got blood on the horns, and it's got blood on the side, and it's got blood all the way around it. 
And the kids are either maybe freaking out or they're just trying to figure out what dad's saying. But he's saying, look, God has provided a way for us to be right with him. And we've had a tough year. And we've not been who we should be. And so we're going there with this, with this animal and these doves and, and this grain to offer to God so we can be reconciled to him. And so how lovely are the courts of God. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. The bird also had a house, he uses an example here, the swallow, a nest for herself. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. It goes on, look at the the highways to Zion. How blessed is, is the man whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highway to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, there it's talking about um, a humiliation. I, I'm passing through the time of humiliating myself to come to you and need to you. And, and again, I don't have time to read through all of these. But as you read your Psalms, a lot of you read Psalms. Somebody told me today, they read five Psalms a day. You, you know, there's a lot of Psalms you're going to go, I don't know what that means. But when you start studying Leviticus, you start understanding the biblical theology, you go, oh, they're talking about the temple. I long to go there. I long to be reminded that God forgives sin, that God desires to reconcile with me. And remember, remember, it's temporary in the Old Testament. It's forever in the New Testament. And yet we seem to get complacent. When's the last time you and your family sang on the way to church, I long to be in your courts, Lord. We long to come, take communion, and remind ourselves that Christ has forgiven us. We long for our marriages and our homes and our jobs and all of who we are to bring honor and worship to you. See, these dear brothers and sisters of Israel had to do this every year. In fact, there was all kinds of feasts they attended to try to remind them that God is a God of lights, God is the light of creation, trying to remind them, trying to keep them close to him. And yet we, we are so blessed with an eternal dwelling of the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we are prone to what? Wander. It's really made me look at the Old Testament so much different, this study. I just go, oh Lord, such godly people in the Old Testament. Now we know generations fell away and they fell under judgment. But these writers, these writers, when you read Psalms 84, Psalms 102, it's that we studied that today as a staff, or Tuesday, we studied that as a staff. These are men, and, and doubtlessly women behind them, standing with them, who walked with God and believed his promises. We'll turn back to chapter 7. I've got to hurry here. Verses 3 through 6, we start to see where God wants separation between the fat offering and the meat offering. And, and there's not fully described in chapter 5, so he goes into more detail here. And so God clearly delineates that the fat would be separated from the meat, and that was to be a special offering. And it's an interesting thing. I've talked about it many times. You've heard me talk about it when you slaughter animals. There's fat by the kidneys and, and um, around the liver, and it's this little grape cholesterol uh, uh, fat, then it's, it's the sweetest fat there is. You, you want to have that. You want to blend that into your hamburger. It's really good. But that was precious to God, and he wanted to separate it. He wants the best. 
And so the fat represents the sweetest and choicest parts of the offering. It was to be completely burned up. They weren't not to use this. They weren't to, to, to use it in their own meals in any way. Even on the holy ground, it was to completely be given to God as a soothing aroma to it. And certainly the New Testament application is God deserves the best because Christ was the best. And so Christ is really resembled in that fat of that offering, isn't he? He's the best of the best. He's set apart from the meat that represented the sin. He is set apart to God. He's wholly consumed by the Father and taken up on our behalf. Astounding truth. Verse 7. Notice here as you read along with me. Um, verse 7. For, the most, for most of the offering, the priest received a portion of this. Um, and he says this is one law, right? I, I want you to do this. For most offerings, they were to take a portion of this. Unless it was atonement offering, right? And whatever the priests offered, the atoning sacrifice, they shall, um, or the, not just the atonement aspect, but all these other offerings, they're supposed to have a portion of it. Meaning the one who is making the atonement um, has claim um, on that offering that was given. He has a portion of that given to him. So I had to think about this today, and I, here's what I come up with. Thus Christ, who was the final sacrifice, he has claimed a portion of this world for himself. He's claimed a portion for himself. He is the high priest, right? And the, the sacrifice, all the sacrifices, there's stuff given. There's some of it given, so whether it's grain or, or some of the meat given, um, is given to the priest. He's claimed a portion for himself. This is why he says that in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So he's claimed, he's purchased part of this for himself. Look at verses 8 through 10. Um, here we're reminded that um, just like the pre-incarnate Christ at the gate of Eden probably, here the skins are given um, to them. Uh, it was interesting. I thought, well, why would they give them the skins? Well, they're very valuable for one, and they're good for covering. And that's exactly what we see in the garden. We talked about this earlier in Genesis 3.21. Somebody check me and make sure that's right. Genesis 3.21. There he sacrifices some animal to cover them. And it's a reminder that Christ is the covering and he gives it to the priest. Here, have these skins for yourself. Verses 9 and 10, we also see here that whether it was ground grain or unleavened bread or this fried type of bread in a pan, it was clear that a portion belonged to the priests, they were to have this. The shared blessing of God. And so the, blood of, the bread of life is given to all those who come God's way. Last thought, just to try to round this up, and I'm going to go through a bunch of verses to kind of sum this one up. The peace offering of thanksgiving and a sacrifice that reconciles God and man. Finally, he gives further instructions from verses 11, chapter 7, 11 through 21, on the peace offering. I think peace offerings have been one of my favorite to study because it's so full of thanksgiving and gratitude. It's hard to be thankful and grateful sometimes when things are hard, isn't it? And I think God knew that. And so when we, when we look at this, you begin to understand the people who walked with God and desired that reconciliation, they were very grateful. 
They were not like Eli's sons or Samuel's sons that were not grateful, that just took what didn't belong to them and they offered strange fire and they handled things completely wrong. These people offered this up with full thanksgiving and full gratitude. You see this throughout the Psalms, Psalms 116, verse 7. To you, verse 17, to you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord, call upon the glory of God. I'm going to offer you a, thank, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And sometimes we look at that and we think New Testament, right? Because Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says that we offer up a sacrifice of praise with our lips. But they're talking about the real sacrifice in many cases. He, he says, look, I, I shall, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer you up a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a peace offering to you. It's going to come volitionally. It's going to come from a free will. It's going to come as a vow to you. And I'm going to do this as I call upon your glory Psalms 119, 108. Oh, accept the free will offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. So this was, a, this was a beautiful offering that they would give. And though the peace offering was normally an animal sacrifice, there was also these baked goods that came with it as well. Look at verse 12. We see unleavened cakes or wafers here made with oil. But look in verse 13. Now we see there's leavened bread to be offered in this sacrifice of thanksgiving. I think this is very fascinating. And though the leavened bread is not part of the offering, it never gets offered on the altar. Um, but it's waved. It's a wave offering. Leviticus 23, we'll see a little more about this. And they were to wave this. And actually, the Hebrew word gives the idea of hold it up high. And that, that leavened bread represented them. It represented the, the offerer, right? I, I have sin in me but I'm offering unleavened bread that represents you. And so you see this great transaction between the sinless God who, who is represented by the Lord Jesus Christ or represented by this offering that's going on the fire of unleavened bread, but at the same time, there's this leavened bread that represents sin and, and evilness that's in man, and he's separated because he's corrupt, and they actually hold them up together. One is offered, the other one is waved. And it's this beautiful teaching that God is able to, to bring people outside of him that, that are sinners to bring him into the house of God. And, and they would do this for a lot of reasons. They would be thanking God for, for the rain he sent, for the grain they had, their, their crops, their, their livestock. They would be thanking God for that. But they would be reminded as they had that unleavened bread and wave that they were, they were the sinners. God was holy. I like that. That reminds me I need God. And even though I'm cleansed from my past, present, and future sins, it is a good reminder, I am not God. I am, I am dependent upon him. And you, saw, you see this in their, the way they handled themselves before God. Psalms 147.14, he makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with finest of wheat. So, so even their, 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 their produce and all that they brought in was to remind them that God was just even though they were sinners. But the overarching principle is this. This was a peace offering, and remember this, that, that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says that for he himself, Christ himself, is our peace offering. So in a sense, it's Christ bringing us to the Father, justifying us by faith so we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. And that's why, as New Testament believers, we um, fulfill Hebrews 13, 15, where we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. 
Look, the final lamb has gone. He's gone and he's died for us. God judged him with all the fury of the eternal flame of judgment that fell upon our, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come in this beautiful peace offering of offering up our praise before the Lord. We live for him. 15 through 18, um, not only was there a peace offering resulting of thanksgiving and gratitude, but it was done voluntarily. It's often referred to as a free will offering. You'll see that later in Leviticus. And even in that, free, in that time, they would make vows. They would make a vow to God. Maybe it was an area they were struggling in, and they would make a vow to God during this time as they held that unleavened bread and they, and they burned the, the, the uh, excuse me, they held the leavened bread and burned the unleavened bread. They would make a vow to God because of what he had done for them. They were grateful and they would make a vow that they would pledge something to walk with him, to obey him in ways. And then notice they were to eat that bread. The bread was to be eaten. It was to be eaten that day and the next day, but by the third day it was an offense to God. And I think what it's doing is it's keeping current with God. You made a vow. Be committed to it. Oh, Lord, I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to do something. Day goes by. Oh, Lord, I'm going to do that. Third door. Don't bother. <laughs> I think that's kind of what he's saying. This is, this is important. Consume this now. Eat this now. Keep your relationship with me fresh. Don't let it grow stale. Gina and I were talking about this today and just trying to get our mind around. We were talking about 1 Corinthians 11 and, and head coverings and all that because I'm going to get to all that as we go in 1 Corinthians and, and trying to just think about what it was like in the ancient world. How difficult it was for women. How difficult it was for food. What a role of keeping the, keeping the home, Titus chapter 2, verse 5, that a woman is to keep the home, be a keeper of the home. What that meant in the first century. Nothing like we think. No air conditioning, no refrigeration, none of that. Constantly being part of, of helping that home run, bringing in resources to that home, the work that women must have done there. And then when you get to the bread, we got thinking about bread. That bread lasted for a day, maybe two. Without refrigeration, it's gone. Keep your relationship fresh. The bread of Jesus Christ is fresh, isn't he? When you consume Christ, right, into John chapter 6, so if you don't consume me, you're going to die in your sins. They, and then the Bible says, many of his disciples walked with him no more after that statement. Consume me. It's all present tense. Consume me. Take me in. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till the next day. Certainly don't wait till the third day. Consume me and take me in. That's what he taught. The last few verses, 19 through 21, um, are those who are clean. They may enjoy the benefits of the peace offering. There's, there's cleansing. You can enjoy God. Repent of sin. Turn from it. Enjoy the grace of God is what he's teaching here. And he's teaching the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. And the one who doesn't come God's way, look at the verse there. At the end it says they need to be cut off from the people. Ultimately the church looks at this and says, boy, if we don't live for the Lord, we're to go under discipline. And here, this is God's way of saying, if they don't take sin serious in my holiness and they don't handle things the way I ask them, come my way, they are to be cut off. So in other words, if you do not have the peace of Jesus Christ alone that drives your living, you eventually will be cut off. It's the peace of Jesus Christ that keeps us going. I think John put it this way, thinking of these passages. He said, John 1, 6, 1 John 1, 6, he said, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I think that's the same principle. 
If you say that you're going to take sin serious and you love the holiness of God and you come to me my way, but then in the back way, when nobody's looking, like the sons of Samuel and Eli, you're a liar. You don't believe it. And so he brings that out. Well, a lot of good stuff there. I know I was tr- I'm trying to cover time. I, I, I remember talking to somebody at my first church. Um, my first p- book I ever taught through was the book of Romans. It took me five years. <laughs> we were back there a couple years ago, and some lady said, she brought her Bible up to me and says, look what happens when I drop my Bible. It still falls open to Romans. <laughs> this is 20, 30 years later. <laughs> So I don't want that to do that to you in, Le- in, Le- in Leviticus. So I'm trying to go through this in a summary of it, and I hope it's helpful. Father, thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, we're looking at these Old Testament texts, and well, I don't know, Lord, maybe many in Christianity might look at this and say, you know, why would you do that? But we're doing it, Jesus, because you said that all of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets speak of you. And so, Lord, as we're looking at this, we're seeing a clear picture in you. We're seeing the pureless, sinless sacrifice. We're seeing holy ground when we consume Christ. We're seeing how beautiful you are and how you love to reconcile us through your Son. How you don't want us to grow old in our relationship with you. You don't want us to be stale like bread on the third day. You want us to be fresh with you. Every more, every morning, Lord, getting up and being with our Savior in the Word, spending time daily memorizing Your Word, dwelling upon You, speaking with You, walking into the Holy of Holies because of our great High Priest, Jesus Christ, and speaking with You, Father. So, Lord, help us be reminded that like those holy men and women of old who had their hope in God, they love the courts of the house of God. There they knew that blood would reconcile them. Sacrifices would bring them into a right relationship with you. So Lord, help us be that way, but in the New Testament sense. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we run close behind him. And we get in behind Jesus. May his dust from his sandals settle on us. We are so close behind him. As we love him. And we worship him and honor him because he did what we could not do and we are now holy because his spirit dwells within us lord these are great truths lord press them in on our hearts help us live for you tomorrow and the next day and so forth thank you for using us lord we love you in jesus name amen